Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you lovelies, to your Wednesday episode. Mates, over here it's pouring down, thunder crackling away. I'm not sure if you can actually hear it right now. And of course, the slow thrum of far away rain clouds are pushing me into a relaxing sleep. It is the kind of weather where the tarmac evaporates the water and makes the air quite humid. But we haven't had rain like this in such a long time here that we welcome it. Nothing quite like a change of rainy weather to relax yourself. This, plus a cup of Earl Grey and bam, it does not get better than this. Today, mates, I have a tale called Horrorhorn, part one, another very, very old tale, talking about creatures that are neither human, but strangely resemble humans. This episode is for adults only, it has some explicit language, and covers sexual trauma or violence, but it is at a minimum. This is essentially a warning though to all those listening, however, not for little ears, basically. Now. Turn your lights off, the sound up, and let's listen to a very old tale together. For the past ten days, Al Hubal had basked in the radiant midwinter weather proper to its eminence of over 6,000 feet. From rising to setting the sun, so surprising to those who have hitherto associated with a pale, tepid plate, indistinctly shining through the murky air of England, had blazed its way across the sparkling blue. And every night, the serene and windless frost had made the stars sparkle like illuminated diamond dust. Sufficient snow had fallen before Christmas, and the big rink sprinkled every evening had given the skaters each morning a fresh surface on which to perform their slippery antiques. Bridge and dancing served to while away the greater part of the night, and to me, now for the first time tasting the joys of a winter in the Engadine, it seemed that a new heaven and a new earth had been lighted, warmed, and refrigerated for the special benefit of those who, like myself, had been wise enough to save up their days of holiday for the winter. But a break came in these ideal conditions. One afternoon the sun grew vapour-veiled, and up the valley from the northwest a wind frozen with miles of travel over ice-bound hillsides began scouting through the calm halls of the heavens. Soon it grew dusted with snow, first in small flakes driven almost horizontally before its congealing breath, and then in larger tufts, as of swans down. And though all day for a fortnight, before the fate of nations, and life and death, had seemed to me of far less importance than to get certain tracing of the skate blades on the ice, of proper shape size, it now seemed that the one paramount consideration was to hurry back to the hotel for shelter. It was wiser to leave Rocking Turns alone, than to be frozen in their quest. I had come out here with my cousin, Professor Ingram, the celebrated physiologist and alpine climber, 
During the serenity of the last fortnight, he had made a couple of notable winter ascents, but this morning, his weather wisdom had mistrusted the signs of the heavens and instead of attempting the ascent of the Piers Passag, he had waited to see whether his misgivings justified themselves. So, there he sat now in the hall of the admirable hotel with his feet on the hot water pipes and the latest delivery of the English Post in his hands. This contained a pamphlet concerning the result of the Mount Everest expedition, of which he had just finished the perusal when I entered. A very interesting report, he said, passing it to me. And they certainly deserve to succeed next year. But who can tell what that final 6,000 feet may entail? 6,000 feet more when you have already accomplished 23,000 does not seem much. But at present, no one knows whether the human frame can stand exertion at such a height. It may affect not the lungs and heart only, but possibly the brain. Delirious hallucinations may occur. In fact, if I had not known better, I should have said that one such hallucination had occurred to the climbers already. And what was that? I asked. You'll find that they thought they came across the tract of some naked human fort at the great altitude. That looked at first sight like a hallucination. What's more natural than that of a brain excited and exhilarated by the extreme height should have interpreted certain marks in the snow as the footprint of a human being. Every bodily organ at this altitude is exuding itself to the utmost to do its work. And the brain seizes on those marks in the snow and says, yes, I'm all right. I'm doing my job and I perceive marks in the snow which I affirm are human footprints. You know, even at this altitude, how restless and eager the brain is, how vividly, as you told me, you dream at night. Multiply that stimulus and that consequent eagerness and restlessness by three, and how natural that the brain should harbor illusions. What, after all, is the delirium which often occupies high fever, but the effort of the brain to do its work under the pressure of feverish conditions. It is so eager to continue perceiving that it perceives things which have no existence. And yet you don't think that these naked human footprints were illusions? Said I. You told me you would have thought so if you had not known better. He shifted in his chair and looked out the window a moment. The air was thick now, with the density of the big snowflakes that were driven along by the squealing northwest gale. Quite so, he said. In all probability, the human footprints were real footprints. I expect that they were the footprints, anyhow, of a being more nearly a human than anything else. My reason for saying so is that I know such beings exist. I have even seen quite near at hand. And I assure you, I do not wish to be nearer in spite of my intense curiosity. The creature, shall we say, which would make such footprints. And if the snow was not so dense, I could show you the place where I saw him. 
he pointed straight out of the window, where across the valley lies the huge tower of the Ungihiro Horn, with a carved pinnacle of rock at the top like some gigantic rhinoceros horn. On one side only, as I knew, was the mountain practicable, and that for none but the finest climbers. On the other three, a succession of ledges and precipices rendered it unscalable. Two thousand feet of sheer rock formed the tower, below are five hundred feet of fallen boulders, under the edge of which grows dense wood of larch and pine. Upon the Ungahura horn? I asked. Yes. Up till twenty years ago, it had never been ascended, and I, like several others, spent a lot of time trying to find a route up it. My guide and I sometimes spent three nights together at the hut beside the Blumen Glacier, prowling around it, and it was by luck, really, that we found the route, for the mountain looks even more impracticable from the far side than it does from this. But one day we found a long, transverse fissure in the side which led to a negotiable ledge. Then there came a slanting ice clure, which you could not see till you got to the foot of it. However, I need not go into that. The big room where we sat was filling up with cheerful groups, driven indoors by this sudden gale and snowfall, and the cackle of merry tongues grew loud. The band, too. That invariable appanage of tea time and Swiss resorts had begun to tune up for the usual potpourri from the works of Puccini. Next moment the sugary sentimental melodies began. Strange contrast, said Ingram. Here we have sitting warm and cosy, our ears pleasantly tickled with these little baby tunes, and outside is the great storm growing more violent every moment, and swirling round the austere cliffs of the Ungahira Horn, the horror horn, as indeed it was to me. I want to hear all about it, I said. Every detail. Make a short story long, if it's short. I want to know why it's your horror horn. Well, Chanton and I, he was my guide, used to spend days prowling about the cliffs, making a little progress on one side, and then being stopped, and gaining perhaps 500 feet of another side, and then being confronted by some insuperable obstacle. Till the day when by luck we found the route. Chanton never liked the job, for some reason that I could not fathom. It was not because of the difficulty of danger of the climbing, for he was the most fearless man I have ever met when dealing with rocks and ice. But he was always insistent that we should get off the mountain and back to the Blumen Hut before sunset. He was scarcely easy even when we had got back to the shelter and locked and barred the door. And I well remember one night when, as we ate our supper, we heard some animal, a wolf, probably, howling somewhere out in the night. A positive panic seized him, and I don't think he closed his eyes till morning. It struck me then that there might be some grisly legend about the mountain, connected possibly with its name. And next day I asked him why the peak was called the Horror Horn. He put the question off at first, and said that, like the Streckhorn, its name was due to its precipices 
and falling stones. But when I pressed him further, he acknowledged that there was a legend about it, for his father had told him there were creatures, so it was supposed, that lived in its caves, things human in shape and covered except for the face and hands, with long black hair. They were dwarfs in size, four feet high or thereabouts, but of prodigious strength and agility, remnants of some wild, primeval race. It seemed that they were still in a upward stage of evolution, or so I guessed. For the story ran that sometimes girls had been carried off by them, not as prey, and not for any such fate as for those captured by cannibals, but to be bred from. Young men also have been raped by them, to be mated with the females of their tribe. All this looked as if the creatures, as I said, were tending towards humanity. But naturally, I did not believe a word of it, as applied to the conditions of the present day. Centuries ago, conceivably, there may have been such beings, and with the extraordinary tenacity of tradition, the news of this had been handed down, and was still current round the hearths of the peasants. As for their numbers, Chanton told me that three had been once seen together by a man who, owing to his swiftness on skis, had escaped to tell the tale. This man, he averred, was no other than his grandfather, who had been benighted one winter evening as he passed through the dense woods below the Ungahida Horn, and Chanton supposed that they had been driven down to these lower altitudes in search of food during severe winter weather, for otherwise the recorded sights of them had always taken place amongst the rocks of the peaks itself. They had pursued his grandfather, then a young man, at an extraordinarily swift canter, running sometimes upright as men run. They had pursued his grandfather, then a young man, at an extraordinarily swift canter, running sometimes upright as men run, sometimes on all fours in the manner of beasts. And their howls were just such, and that we had heard that night in the Bloomin' Hut. Such at any rate was the story Chanton told me, and like you, I regarded it as the very moonshine of superstition. But the very next day, I had reason to reconsider my judgment about it. It was on that day that after a week of exploration, we hit on the only route at present known to the top of our peak. We started as soon as there was light enough to climb by, for as you may guess, on very difficult rocks it is impossible to climb by lantern or moonlight. We hit on the long fissure I have spoken of. We explored the ledge which from below seemed to end in nothingness, and with an hour's step cutting ascended the Kalur which led upwards from it. From there onwards it was a rock climb, certainly of considerable difficulty, but with no heart-breaking discoveries ahead. It was about nine in the morning that we stood on the top. We did not wait there long, for that side of the mountain 
is raked by falling stones loosened when the sun grows hot from the ice that holds them, and we made haste to pass the ledge where the falls are most frequent. After that, there was the long fissure to descend, a matter of no great difficulty, and we were at the end of our work by midday, both of us, as you may imagine, in the state of highest elation. A long and tiresome scramble among the huge boulders at the foot of the cliff that lay before us. Here the hillside is very porous, and great caves extend far into the mountain. We had unroped at the base of the fissure, and we were picking our way, as seemed good to either of us, among these fallen rocks, many of them bigger than an ordinary house. When, on coming round the corner of one of these, I saw that which made it clear that the stories of Chanton had told me we were no figment of traditional superstition. No twenty yards in front of me lay one of these beings of which she had spoken. There it sprawled, naked and basking on its back with face turned up to the sun which his narrow eyes regarded unwinking. In form, it was completely human, but the growth of hair that covered limbs and trunk alike almost completely hid the sun-tanned skin beneath. But its face, save for the down of its cheeks and chin, was hairless, and I looked on the countenance, the sensual and malevolent bestiality of which froze me with horror had the creature been an animal, one would have felt scarcely a shudder at the gross animalism of it. No horror lay in the fact that it was a man. There lay by it a couple of gnawed bones, and, its meal finished, it was lazily licking its protuberant lips, from which came a purring murmur of content. With one hand, it scratched the thick hair of its belly, in the other, it held one of these bones, which presently split in half beneath the pressure of its finger and thumb. But my horror was not based on the information of what happened to those men whom these creatures caught. It was due only to my proximity to a thing so human and so infernal. The peak of which the ascent had a moment ago filled us with such elated satisfaction, became to me an Ungihirhorn indeed, for it was the home of beings more awful than the delirium of nightmare could ever have conceived. Chanton was a dozen paces behind me, and with an awkward wave of my hand, I caused him to halt. Then, withdrawing myself with infinite precaution, so as not to attract the gaze of that basking creature, I slipped back around the rock, whispered to him what I had seen, and with blanched faces, we made a long detour, peering round every corner, and crouching low, not knowing that any step, we might not come upon another of these beings, or that, from the mouth of one of these caves in the mountainside, there might not appear another of those hairless and dreadful faces. With perhaps this time, 
the breasts and insignia of womanhood. That would have been the worst of all. Luck favoured us, for we made our way among the boulders and shifting stone, the rattle of which might at any moment have betrayed us. Without a repetition of my experience, and once among the trees we ran as if the Furies themselves were in pursuit. Well now did I understand, though I dare say, I cannot convey the qualms of Chanton's mind when he spoke to me of these creatures. Their very humanity was what made them so terrible. The fact that they were of the same race as ourselves, but of a type so abysmally degraded that the most brutal and inhuman of men would have seemed angelic in comparison. And this is where we'll stop today. But part two is just around the corner, and I can't wait to share it with you all this Friday, mates. Well, Professor Ingram has really seen some messed up looking creatures. Partly woman, but not. Nightmarish strength and ghoulish appetite, these creatures in the mountains are just monstrous. So join me for part two this Friday where I cover the last part of this creepy monstrous tale. And I'll be editing an old time radio episode just for you because you guys and gals rock and I can't have you missing out on an episode. So join me then as well for that. Before I jump onto my thank yous, which I have a lot for today, I found another podcast that I can't get enough of. And you know me by now, I only recommend what I like and is genuinely good. So for you lovelies out there that are struggling to get to sleep, then this is a great podcast for you and worth checking out. It's called Sleep Whispers by Whispering Harris, 100% gentle whispering of bedtime stories, guided relaxations, unique trivia questions, and awesome Wikipedia articles. And if you're like me, I love myself some trivia questions, mates. And there's trivia questions in this podcast as well. I'm going to include the podcast in the episode notes so it's easier to find. But if you want to use your podcast player to find it, just search Sleep Whispers in the player and it should pick it up pretty quick. Totally worth checking out. I'm actually going to listen to it once I finish this episode. Something I've been looking forward to this week. And speaking of looking forward to, are my Patreon supporters. My thank yous. First up, my legendary Ode Night Tea Titan, Maya. You are awesome, mate. Today's music is supported by the likes of your brilliance, and I've been using the panning tool, the little tool that lets me shift audio in the virtual space to create that sense of spatial awareness within the audio. Takes a bit of, you know, technical know-how to get it just right, but thanks to you, mate, I've been able to improve this show in a very unique and different way. So Maya, thank you so very, very much, mate. You are awesome. My white tea warlord, Leza Maxima. Mate, thanks to your support, I've been able to dial up my voice mod some more and purchase some new sound effects. I have a new array of crowd sounds, burps, choking sounds, and slaps in the face sounds. You know, you never know when a burp or a slap will come in handy. Nothing is below the belt when it comes to the characters that I voice. <laughs> Cheers, mate, for your constant support. And my old grey enforcers, the lifeblood of this podcast, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Martini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, 
Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo, Yakone, Tea Time Drinker 1, and divided by zero. Thank you, you legends. You are the peeps that send dollar dues my way, and every single dollar do flies right back into production. Now, I can't wait for Friday, where I can share part two with you lovely people. It's going to be a hectic one at that. So stay tuned. And as always, till next, we meet.